Well, thank you again for having me. Um, very warm good morning to you, even if it's a little bit breezy in here. You can hear the leaves rustling. And hello to those who are listening in online. I hope I'm looking in the right direction uh, when I do that. Excuse me with you in person this time um, after preaching via Zoom back in August. Um, you may remember that I preached from Matthew chapter 8, um, just after the Sermon on the Mount on that occasion. Um, and uh, well, today, as you have heard, we're looking at one of the sections from the Sermon on the Mount itself. We're particularly going to be studying um, chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Uh, but it's great to have Linda read the whole of those first 18 verses. Hopefully you can see there's a very strong theme that runs throughout the passage. It's a whole section that hangs together very closely. Let's, um, let's come before God and in prayer as we come to his word. Father, as we come to pray to you and ask for your guidance and help this morning, we thank you that you are our Father who sees in secret. We thank you for the extraordinary privilege it is to be those who can pray to the Creator and address him as Father. What joy, what privilege, what kindness. Help us never to lose sight of what a gift it is that we can have relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name's sake. Amen. Well, we are looking, as I say, at um, verses five to eight. But the principle that draws the whole section of verses one to 18 uh, together is right there. Uh, just if you look back to verse one and it's this, it's don't do your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. And what Jesus does in these 18 verses is he applies that principle, first of all, to giving in verses two to four and then to, well, not then, but uh, afterwards to fasting in the uh, final three verses, 16, 17 and 18. Um, and in this middle section, he applies it to prayer. Now, when we read a passage like this, I suspect that the vast majority of us uh, feel fairly rubbish. Maybe um, you're already sat there comparing yourself with the people who are sit uh, sitting around you and worrying about how much you pray or whether the prayers that you pray are sort of good enough. But I want to say just from the outset here that that inclination is, is right at the heart of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So we need to fight that temptation to look around and compare ourselves with others from the outset. Jesus has some hard words for the scribes and Pharisees in this passage. And we, we can learn a lot uh, from what the Lord Jesus says about about that. But primarily, I'd like us to go away from this passage, from this sermon, encouraged in prayer by knowing that we have a heavenly father who sees in secret and knows everything that we need before we even ask him. If you walk away from today worrying about whether you're doing well enough at prayer, worried if you like about your performance in prayer, well, then you've missed the whole point 
And ironically, that is what will make you more like the Pharisees in this passage than we would care to admit. Well, we're going to consider the passage in the following way. We're going to consider verse five, first of all, uh, under the heading how not to pray. uh, And then we'll come on to verses six uh, to eight, uh, how to pray. So let's get straight on with it and get into that first section, how to pray. And speaking of the Pharisee, Pharisees, let's look at how not to pray in verse five. Let me read it again for you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Straightforwardly, the Pharisees and the scribes, they prayed to be seen. Jesus uses that word hypocrites uh, here to refer to them. And the word originally means, or used in its original context, the Greek word hypocrite means actor. Okay, it was actually a word that meant actor. And actors in the ancient world um, would wear uh, not face masks like we're wearing today, but full face masks over the, that covered their entire faces. Literally, the entire human face was hidden behind this sort of wooden um, board with a, a face painted on the front of it. So you couldn't see their actual face at all. Just imagine for a minute that you've gone to see a play in the ancient world and on come the actors and they do their performance and it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. And at the end, the entire audience bursts into a huge, rupturous uh, round of applause. What are you clapping the actors for? Are you clapping them for their fine character? Are you clapping them for their integrity? Well, no, you're not. You're you're clapping for how well they played a part. You're clapping them for their acting. In fact, we even clap actors for playing baddies, don't we? The baddie often gets the biggest cheer at the panto. We don't assume that the actor who plays Voldemort in the Harry Potter films is, in real life, the personification of evil. When these hypocrites are praying to be seen by men. Jesus says they're acting. We're only seeing a part that they play. They may have been very good at it. They knew the scriptures very well, and no doubt their prayers would have been filled with them. And I imagine they played their parts convincingly, beating their breasts at the right moment for extra effect, even crying out in despair or using a hopeful tone as they spoke of God's promises. But even the best actors are still just actors at the end of the day. And the parts they play aren't the real them. They were putting on a show. And so they were ultimately interested in other people's faces rather than the face of God. Well, is that true of us too? When you meet to pray with others, whether that's on Zoom or in in person, how concerned are you with what others think about your prayers? Are you worried about saying the right thing, about not making a mistake? Or do we have in mind instead the one with whom we are speaking, our Heavenly Father, the Creator? 
One way that might help us to reflect on this would be to compare your prayers when you're in a prayer meeting with other people with your prayers when you're by yourself. Do we use different turns of phrase, a different form of words, or perhaps most revealing of all, do we do we not pray when we're by ourselves? You see, we can even turn prayer, speaking with our Heavenly Father into a way to, to worship ourselves. What does Jesus say to this type of prayer? He says, I assure you, end of verse 5, they've got their reward. The scribes and Pharisees, they wanted the praise of men and they got it. But that's all they got. So it is with us. If you want the praise of men, well, you can get it. You can learn to pray impressive sounding prayers at prayer meetings. But all it amounts to, all you'll get is the fleeting praise of man. Well, let's turn now to verses six to eight and to, if you like, real prayer. And look at this under the heading of how to pray. Jesus wants something so much better for us. He has two things to say about how to pray. Firstly, in verse six, he calls us to pray in secret. Let's read verse six. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, that is the very opposite of praying to be seen, isn't it? Go into your private room. The word has the sense of a broom cupboard and shut the door. Now, we mustn't read Jesus woodenly here. We could pray in our private room and still pray to be seen by people by making it very obvious when we're going in there. Or dropping it into conversation later. Well, when I was on my knees in prayer this morning for three hours at 4 a.m., actually it was 3 a.m., but no, anyway. They're very obvious ways, aren't they, that we can still do what Jesus is talking about here. Similarly, Jesus isn't saying that all prayer must take place individually in closed rooms with locked doors, as if prayer meetings aren't okay. No, he's getting at the attitude of prayer. Real prayer isn't performed before an audience. The one thing that's important when we pray is that we realise we are approaching God. You see, knowing that, we can enter into our private room, whether we're at home alone and crying out to God in the middle of the night, Or in a room filled with a thousand others who are listening to every word we say. Or whether we're walking alone down a busy street. Or perhaps sitting at a desk in a busy office at work. Some of those scenarios don't sound so realistic these days, do they? But you get the idea. And we do it simply by recognising who it is that we come before in prayer. Well, how can we do that? What words does Jesus give us to encourage us in real prayer? In real prayer? 
Firstly, he tells us that our Heavenly Father sees in secret. And so that means that when we pray in our private room, our Father sees us. He hears our prayers, every one of them. We don't gain the good opinion of men, but we do get a direct line to the creator himself. He sees even though, in fact, we could even say because we're in secret. We're not praying for the praise of men. So that's pretty encouraging. But then Jesus goes further. And the next part of the verse might actually slightly surprise us. He says, our father, uh, in fact, he says, your father, verse six, who sees in secret will reward you. Rewards? <laughs> Hold on a second. Hasn't Jesus heard about justification by faith alone through grace alone? Let's take a moment to consider what he means here. He's not talking about the reward, if you like, of salvation. As if praying in the right way could ever earn our salvation, earn our redemption, earn our forgiveness before God. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about rewards for the believer who has already been saved by the death of Christ in their place. Rewards in the new creation. The Scottish theologian John Murray explains it like this. He says, while, there's some difficult language here, while it makes void the gospel, in other words, it empties it, it, it undermines it entirely, while it makes void the gospel to introduce works in connection with justification, your works cannot save you. They are filthy rags before the Lord. Nevertheless, he goes on, works done in faith from the motive of love to God, in obedience to the revealed will of God and to the end of his glory are intrinsically good and acceptable to God. And as such, they will be the criterion of reward in the life to come. It's such unusual language to think of, isn't it, as as uh, reformed Christians. Murray is clearly concerned that people don't misunderstand him. He goes on, this future reward is not salvation. Salvation is by grace and it is not a reward for works. It's not as a reward for works that we are saved. The reward has reference to the station a person is to occupy in glory and does not have reference to the gift of glory itself. Well, there's more that we could say there, and John Murray is very helpful on this, and there's others that I could point you to. But let's just pause on that for a moment. There is mystery here in the true sense of the word. We will understand more fully in glory. But for now, let's just consider this. As if it weren't enough to know that when we enter enter into our private room, we have the promise that the, the God who holds the entirety of creation in his hands sees and hears us. 
the Lord Jesus goes further and says that he will even reward us for praying like this. Well, if we know that, why would we choose the reward of man? Well, that brings us to verses seven and eight and the second way that Jesus tells us to pray. Let's read verse seven. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Here, Jesus returns again to the Pharisees and scribes and they babble on, he says. They kind of trip over themselves with their many words as if they're more likely to be heard if they use lots of words. Jesus's verdict on this, he says, they're like idolaters. Just think how damning that is for a moment. The respected leaders of God's people, the teachers of God's words, no better than idolaters. Those who have no relationship with God. Many of the world's religions are obsessed with repetition in prayer, aren't they? As if as if God would be pleased by me saying a hundred times Harry Krishna or Hail Mary. What sort of it what sort of a God is it that such religion imagines? I think it's a God like us. It's as if they imagine him to be like a parent who can who could be worn down by the incessant repetition of their child. And children, you know how to do this, don't you? You're experts at asking and asking and asking and asking until eventually dad says, oh, fine, go on then. But God isn't like that. God isn't like us. He's not just a greater, more powerful human. Now, again, we need to be careful of a wooden reading of Jesus' words here. He's, he's not saying that it's wrong to repeat a prayer. In the very next section, he tells his followers how to pray. And we're going to close the sermon by using the Lord's Prayer to pray together. So he's not saying it's wrong to repeat a prayer, even a formula of particular words. Nor is he saying that it's wrong to Keep praying about something, to be, if you like, persistent in prayer over a particular matter. In chapter 7, verse 7, if you just cast your eye further on, he encourages us to keep, to keep asking that it will be given, to keep knocking and the door will be opened. What is he saying there? Well, he's addressing the, the attitude of the babbling Pharisees. As if prayer was some kind of magic trick, like a spell or a form of lucky chant. Perhaps we might not feel that that's such an issue for us. But I think there are subtle ways that this kind of attitude can creep into our prayer. One way is that we purposefully pray long prayers when we're in prayer meetings to impress others straightforwardly. But perhaps another is that We could say this, having a time set aside for regular prayer can be really helpful, can't it? But we mustn't allow a useful habit to morph into what Jesus is talking about here. Here's a good way of testing that. 
How would you feel if you miss your, if you're somebody who has a regular time set aside to pray each day, how would you feel if you miss that prayer slot? You see, the habit can quickly become mechanical, a checklist, ultimately about making me feel good about myself for the day. Well, I'm not sure that's so very far from the attitude of the babbling idolaters here. Notice how Jesus addresses this meaningless muttering. Let's read verse eight. Don't be like them. Because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. The antidote to mechanical, meaningless prayers is to remember who it is that we're addressing in prayer again. And what a wonderful encouragement it is when we realise that. You see, in prayer, we come before our Heavenly Father. And he knows exactly what we need before we pray. Notice that Jesus uses the word need, not the word want. Prayer isn't simply about getting what we want. No, it's much better. Our Father knows what we need before we even ask. We often know what our children need before they come and ask, don't we? And sometimes we give them the very opposite of what they want because we know what they need. And in fact, we'd be terrible parents if we gave them what they want. Well, if human parents know how to give our children what they need, how much more does our heavenly father with his perfect knowledge and understanding know how to give us what we truly need and it's a great encouragement to know that he isn't waiting for us to magically say the right words in the right order uh, with the right number of words in order to unlock his desire for our good as we come to a close. What a picture our Heavenly Father, uh, of our Heavenly Father, Jesus leaves us with. This is right at the heart of what Jesus has to say in these sections. He mentions our Heavenly Father. If you just skim your eye through the 18 verses that we read, he mentions our Heavenly Father in verse 1, in verse 4, twice in verse 6, in verse 8, 9, 14, 15 and twice in verse 18. You see, right at the heart of how we avoid doing our righteousness before men is to know God as heavenly father. So it bears addressing how it is that we can know God as our heavenly father. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus never addressed God in any other way, except by calling him father, with one exception. And that is when he died on the cross at Calvary. Jesus enjoyed this wonderful relationship with God as father throughout his life and ministry. He was no actor. He didn't pray to be seen by men. He is the only one to have had this relationship with God the Father that he describes 
in these verses. He always spoke with God as his father in his private room, as it were. And yet at the cross, he faced the wrath of God that was laid up for us. As if it were him who prayed on the street corners and in the synagogues. As if it were him who babbled out mechanical prayers to God. As if he were the actor, more consumed with what people thought about him than with his private communion with God, his father in heaven. Why did he face that wrath and punishment? Well, so that we might call God our heavenly father. That we might have that same level of sincerity, openness and integrity that Jesus has with God the Father. If you don't know God as your father, if you're still acting, if you're trying to pretend and to fool yourself that you're okay before this God. Ultimately, if you're trying to fool him. Well, you don't need to. You can be honest with God. You can declare the reality of your polluted heart before him. He sees it anyway. And you can enjoy forgiveness because Jesus, the son, went to the cross for your sake. So that you can know God as father and enjoy this most awesome privilege of true prayer with him as just one of the many wonderful benefits.